Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Jim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to Weekly Weights. I'm Alex Hayes. With me is Will on Zoom. What's up? Say hi. Say hi, Will. Uh, this is episode 98. And uh, the topic of this one is isolation periodization. Do you like I, that? I do like that. It sounds like the Emancipation Proclamation, um, but much, <laughs> <laughs> probably much less important. Um, but before we even get onto the topic, Alex, I want to address some recent controversy, controversy. Yeah, look, I'm real, fi- I'm real fired up about this one, Will. Well, look, like I'm obviously somebody for whom this show has like done a lot to build my profile, build my name. It's made me a lot of connections. It's opened a lot of doors for me. And so it's pretty important to me, the individual that the content that we put out is helpful, inoffensive, original, um, and you know, just reflects well upon me for being associated with it. I certainly, I would certainly never want to do something on this show where it permanently penalized me because you know, it's so central to, to my current business which is why the accusation that we received in a recent iTunes review really, really miffed me, Alex. So this review came in on the 18th of March from Kevin Bacon CK. And I had to give it a month just to cool down after this came in because I was, I was so upset. You mean so you didn't Kev- read it for a month? Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Kevin Bacon says, title is underrated, two slashes, overrated. Four stars, decent, but come up with your own segments. Massonomics come up with the overrated, underrated thingo. Now, right. Alex, why don't you respond first, Alex, and then I'm going to say what I think. Okay, well, first of all, thanks for the four stars. It's no, stop. Five. I'm stopping you. Fuck that. That was one of the things I was going to address. These are like Uber reviews, man. You either give five stars or one star. Like if you got a then, problem, look. If just you got go a problem, give him, give us one. Honestly, hate mail, anthrax, and one star. That's like you actually are serious. Otherwise, you just don't have the courage of your convictions. So that's number one. Fuck that. Five stars or one star, baby, all the way. Alex, sorry, carry on. Thank you for the four stars. Yes, I agree. Thank you for the four stars. But if you've got an issue, give us one star, or maybe send us a message, and we'll we'll discuss what your issue is rather than fucking making it public second of all sort out your grammar if you want me to take you seriously you've made like four mistakes in a 10 word sentence so sort that out otherwise i will not address it fucking seriously and thirdly (laughs) yes i did not come up with overrated underrated properly rated but i thought it would be a cool segment if we put a little gym twist on it I'm pretty sure I heard it first on a basketball podcast and I'm pretty sure every podcast does variations of everything exactly the same. So everyone's really copying anyone anyway. So that's, that's my take. Like if, if you have a problem with that, then you probably have a problem with us doing Q and A's, which every fucking podcast does a Q and A. You know what? I, I'm actually, I'm a little bit on Kevin's side. Because when you said to me, and this was Alex's idea, so I'm just deferring all responsibility for the plagiarism that we've been rightfully accused of to Alex. Um, When you said to me, you wanted to do this segment, I thought, that's a really good idea, Alex. 
And I thought that it was because Alex was jealous of me being one of the official ratings boys and getting to rate things and that he just wanted to sort of dip his finger in that pie. So I was more than happy to let Alex go ahead with this idea that I thought he had come up with. Now, when I wrote to him and said, Alex, I've just seen this review and he's accusing you of plagiarism. What I expected was Alex to say, that's such bullshit. I thought of that completely on my own. But he fessed up to plagiarism on the spot and just said it was from a different source that he'd copied, which I'm personally ashamed to have been associated with, but also I'm not going to stop being associated with because I, I quite enjoy that segment. So I think we should just keep doing it. Yeah, don't say you're ashamed. You love the segment. Yeah, it's a good and segment. It's fun. Also, that means we can't do anything that even resembles another podcast ever again, if that's your stance. So that's ridiculous. Well, many other podcasts like attempt to be informational. And I think we've certainly left that far behind in an attempt to be original. <laughs> so, <laughs> so well, look, how, I, well, at least, at least we didn't do do as bad as peak speak and literally copy our end four questions to tell us everything to know about it. And they say, what, what are they, what's theirs called? Four questions about yourself or something. And one of them is the exact same question. Fucking idiots. I don't really listen to peak speak. So I'm just, you know, I don't want to give them my download metrics. Anyway, I'm glad that we've addressed that um, that controversy. I'm also glad that Alex was able to come to the table with an olive leaf um, and sort of say like, hey, let's put this behind us. It seems we're all friends. I'm glad, Alex, that you didn't personally attack him or go in hard on anything like his grammar that he might take offense at. And instead, you just like addressed the argument at hand in a really cogent way. I think that's been good. And I'm hoping that in future, if people do have criticism for our podcast, that perhaps just by writing to us and leaving us either a one or five star review, depending on what you think um, we can also address, address your issues in, in such a constructive fashion. You happy with that, Alex? Sure. All right. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for your review. Um, <laughs> Alex is giving him the rude finger over zoom. <laughs> Let's get on to the topic at hand. So a couple of weeks ago, we did a podcast talking about like motivation, dealing with changes in circumstances and so on. And we sort of spoke about like making this whole training from home process as enjoyable as we can. Um, making this whole training from home process as enjoyable as we can really, really, um, yeah, really trying to ensure that training remains a cornerstone of our lives and something that we particularly enjoy. Um, but we are also a podcast about actually trying to improve training performance. And so we thought, you know, what's the point in doing anything at all at home if we can't justify it as being somehow related to our sport of choice, which is powerlifting. And so in today's episode, what we're going to do is forget entirely about training in a way that we like and talk purely nuts and bolts style. What are some things that we can do depending on our circumstances, working from home that we can justifiably say is going to improve powerlifting performance and what would be a path to structuring our training from first principles, from where we are now, no training equipment to being a more successful powerlifter on the platform later. And if any of you found that monologue slightly um, gratuitously long, that's because Alex spilt his drink across his laptop when I began delivering it and, and gave me the, the finger rolling thing that says keep going for as long as you can while he cleaned it up. Alex, what's the state of your laptop? I think we're good. And um, I thought we were just going to continue there and not make me look like an idiot, but that's all right. Honestly, Alex, if there's two purposes to this podcast, one is self-promotion and the second one is, is deprecation of you, is to make you look like an idiot. And... I don't think I'd quite done enough self-promotion at the start of the podcast. So I really wanted to make sure I scored some points on that front. 
How much of your drink well, you got left? Well done, Will. I only okay. spilt probably probably thirty mils. I gotta say, if there's one thing I, I was can able say to mop you, it up effectively. Very good reflexes. That's one thing that you have at your disposal. Would you say? Thank you. No worries. All right, let's move on to. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's so, move on so, to talking about training at home. Alex, you take the way. Yeah. So what we're gonna do is look at um, two case studies, which probably covers the majority of people who aren't able to train like they normally would um, given gym closures. So what we'll do is we'll go over the first case study and then a bunch of questions. Um, and then we'll discuss each question and then we'll go over the second one, do the same thing. And yeah, then we've got okay. some s- sort of stuff at the end um, about if you have a full setup and then yeah. going back to when gym opens, gyms open again. Yeah, I think the way we try to structure this as well is that the first one, because we're starting with the least training resources, should give you like an in-concept idea of what you can do with the additional freedom of more resources. So section one will be longer than section two. All right, Alex, let's take it away. You're in charge. All right, so in the first case study, we've got a person with no barbell or rack, some light weights and some bands. So maybe a couple of uh, different pairs of dumbbells, um, and a couple of different lengths and tensions of bands. So the, I guess the first question is what kind of training is completely off the table? Um, and because of that, what adaptations are going to be very unlikely that we can chase? All right. Um, so for mine, like if you don't have access to any powerlifting equipment, being barbell, plates, rack and bench, um, and you don't have access to any resistance that you know resembles the top end of your powerlifting strength, then it's pretty reasonable to say that maximum strength in the powerlifts is off the table. Um, you do need to be doing you do need to be doing the powerlifts with sufficiently heavy weights to train or maintain maximal strength. Um, and if you can't do that, then that's just going to have to take a backseat immediately. Um, Alex, would you agree with that? Yeah, entirely. Um, you know, we we know that the the general nuts and bolts of powerlifting training is going to be in the 70 to 90% range for most of the year. Um, and if you don't have weights that are up to 70%, then, you know, your goals are going to have to shift. So I guess, you know, looking at doing a powerlifting comp two weeks after gyms opening and comp start, like that's not going to be smart. No. And so I guess like with also the lack of access to those equipment is that, um, sorry, a consequence of the lack of access to that equipment is also that you're not going to be able to necessarily get any of the movement specific adaptations as well. So, you know, you're not going to get, um, get any of the technical practice that you might have with the power lifts. Um, either you might be able to do some things that are squat pattern, like upper body push pattern, like, and hip hinge pattern, like, but certainly nothing that we would say is going to directly or immediately transfer to your power lifts. And, you know, that's absolutely fine. So you can, you can pretty much say you're going to lose some top-end strength. Um, and then the, the question is sort of what can we do knowing that we're going to lose some top-end strength to position us to be in a good place to get it back. Um, yep. Alex, did you have anything more that you thought was absolutely off the table there? No, that, that's it really. Like the skill of the actual lifts because you don't have the implements to actually do the lifts. And then, the, again, the top-end strength because you don't have the ability to load them efficient, uh, sufficiently. Sure. So I guess the next question then is because we, because of the certain things that are off the table. So practicing the technique of the lifts and losing that top end strength, what can we do? Like what, what adaptations are feasible? 
Right. So, so the first one, and this is like a theme of our podcast generally is that you can, you can always effectively train for hypertrophy or growing muscle, or at the very least train for the maintenance of the muscle that you have. Um, because your muscles don't really know what exercise you're doing. They just respond to like attention or stimulus that you put upon them. You have a lot more freedom in terms of exercise selection when we're trying to say like maintain the size of our quads than we do when we're trying to maintain, like Alex said, skill in a specific lifting pattern for say a squat. Um, so the door's still pretty wide open for hypertrophy. And even in the absence of heavy weights, we can manipulate training such as to provide a really high tension stimulus on muscles. And whether that's by doing a very large number of reps, by occluding the muscle, by isolating it through a specific movement pattern or, you know, whatever it happens to be, it's still, even with very limited resources possible to effectively train for hypertrophy. Um, and again, as a base quality of powerlifters, if we can do something to either improve or maintain our body composition, then we're not going to go too far backwards when we can reintroduce the chance to like learn those skills and get comfortable under heavy weights again. Related to that, we can also improve um, general conditioning and work capacity. So something that almost like inadvertently suffers when we are training for maximal strength or doing quite heavy strength training generally is our conditioning because like that necessitates us doing slightly lower volumes and taking longer rests. Whereas when you say, okay, I've got limited weights at my disposal, I'm going to have to do some hypertrophy training. That means we're going to have to train with higher volumes. And if you're doing higher reps per, um, per set as well, you're going to have to develop some buffering capacity and some ability to like deal with the metabolic byproducts of high reps. You're absolutely free to do some running and interval training. So all the things that actually build that conditioning base that are going to make you a more effective trainee. Um, and then I've got a couple of more, but Alex, it looks like you want to jump in. Do you have anything to add on those two? No, but it's a, it's a really good point of um, highlighting sort of something that we talk about a lot on the podcast is that like the wider the base that we can uh, create the higher the peak we can create as well. Mm. And, you know, if we use that pyramid sort of idea um, right now, if you are limited in equipment, the top of the pyramid is going to be avo completely avoidable. Like, sorry, completely, uh, completely to be avoided. Like you can't get there, but what you can do is broaden things later and make things actually stimulative enough to help you down the track. And I think that's the point here is that, you just have to delay your gratification because you're not going to be able to compete for a long time anyway. Um, you're going to be stuck in isolation for probably a few more months, but there are things that we can do to really help us later. Absolutely. Um, what about some other things like um, in, uh, muscle imbalances or working on less trained movement patterns? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Like if we're, if we are limited to not doing the power lifts as we are in this instance, um, then it's like it almost necessitates us in like increasing the amount of movement variability in our training because like i said you can't actually just go and do a heavy squat as your leg builder um so so given that we have more movement variability that's probably going to be good for like our general tissue our tissue health maybe our motor control and stuff but it's also a really good chance for us to deliberately address some movement weaknesses so i know alex for instance is doing quite a lot of single-legged work right now um, because he doesn't have access to machines and things for his accessory work. But if you if you had really identified in yourself, like, hey, I've got really poor control of like my trunk and pelvis positioning, in this sort of very general preparatory phase, 
you might deliberately do a lot more work on one leg. You might do a lot more work that's like rotational or, or lateral as opposed to just moving forward and backwards like we do in the powerlifts. You might train, say, knee flexion more to train your hamstrings. Might do some reaching and stuff through the upper body as well. So get yourself moving in planes and in patterns that we don't normally do. And that's going to do a lot to, to like let some niggles heal improve your general physical competency and have you really like roaring and healthy for when you do want to reintroduce some more specific training. Um, Alex, what do you think of that? Yeah, I completely agree, man. I think that's often overlooked um, in powerlifting, being able to move through patterns that we actually don't need because they're going to help us stay fresher. They're going to help us move better. They're going to keep us injury free for longer. Mm. And when it comes down, when it comes down to who can be the best powerlifter, like you're not going to do it in a couple of years' time. It's going to take you a decade or more, two decades even. And if you can stay injury-free and niggle-free for a longer period of time by incorporating these things year-round, not just now, like now's a good time to sort of learn how to do them and get good at them. But that doesn't mean that when we go back to normal training that they should disappear. Like that should be something that's in your plan all the time probably not to the degree that it will be now because we'll have other things taking their place, but they still, I think they still need to be in there. Yeah. And the final thing that I wrote is that like, and we'll talk about this when we start actually talking about maybe a longer term plan. Um, final thing I wrote down was that maybe we can also try and squeeze just a little bit more transfer out of these general qualities that we're, that we're working on if we're creative enough with the training that we do. And so a couple of ideas that I wrote down were isometrics and power training. Um, and we'll talk about them again when we lay out some ideas for planning training. They're not going to fully make up for the lack of you doing power lifts, but if you can find some avenues to let yourself produce as higher forces as possible, then you might somewhat mitigate those losses too. Um, so Alex, what was the next question? Uh, the next question was given what we can do, what is a path that we can take to ultimately improve powerlifting performance? Can we string together successive phases to build towards maximal strength without access to heavy weights? All right. So for mine, yes. Um, but what we've got to remember when, like when we lay out the ideas that some of them that I've written down here is that all the stuff I'm talking about sort of doesn't involve a realization phase. So we're still, until you actually have access to the equipment to do heavy power lifts, there's obviously no way that you can really like, demonstrate that the things that you are doing now have improved your powerlifting because you just don't have the chance to truly transfer it and test. Um, but I think there is still a logical structure that we can sort of overlay on this stuff that takes us from getting healthy, building some base qualities through to improving force output. And so an idea that I laid out would be this. So we can think of like three training phases, right? So the first one, and this one would be optional, would be an active rest phase. So if you've just come off some really, really hard training or you're coming into isolation and you're a little bit beaten up or just like emotionally not really in a good place to actually start a difficult train, like training or structured training program right now, um, then you could do an active rest phase for a couple of weeks, maybe two to three weeks. And in that time, I'd be encouraging you to do things like some light to moderate cardio, which is going to help build that cardiovascular conditioning base. It's going to help you do higher volumes of training, right? It's also... Interestingly, like light to moderate cardio seems to be the exercise modality that I'm aware of that's most consistently associated with improved mood state. I actually don't know what the state of the literature is with resistance training, 
But that's the type of thing that's like likely to be good for your well-being. It's going to help with your aerobic fitness when we go into higher volume training after. So you do some light to moderate cardio, but then you should also in this time start familiarizing yourself with some of the new, um, new resistance training modalities that you're going to be chasing. So before you even focus on trying to get really, really good at things, just vaguely feel them out and learn like, what can I do with the equipment that's at my disposal? What movements feel good? What feel bad? Doing with reasonably low volumes, like as in set volumes. So do a couple of sets per exercise of reasonably high reps so you can kind of feel them out, feel which ones are effective, learn how to do it well. And I would bias yourself in this time towards some things that are going to be restorative movement patterns for powerlifters. So when we powerlift, you know, heaps of our work is in the sagittal plane. We're always working towards extension, retraction of the scapulae, um, things like that. So I'd bias us towards doing some unilateral work, um, do some core work in the coronal and frontal planes. So stuff that's having you bending side to side and rotating, um, do some reaching work overhead. Like I said, do some knee flexion, even do some calves, but just do some stuff that's going to have your body generally feeling healthy so that you are familiar with the exercises that you're going to do in your harder training. You have the aerobic base and your body's not feeling clunky or hurt when we go into hard hypertrophy. Um, Alex, for that specific phase, is there anything that I haven't mentioned that you think you would whack in on top? No, nothing to add, but a couple of um, just things to comment on. Mm. Um, I guess the way that you've outlined it is really smart. And basically the way that I would characterize it would be, or give it a title would be like a pre, like a preparatory phase. So like mm. in this phase, everything that we're doing is going to help us in the next phase, which is something that we've spoken about a lot. And it's a similar idea to, you know, building a larger muscle to lift more weight. It's like building a bigger uh, capacity to be able to do a little bit more work, but also free yourself up and make yourself feel good so that you're able to move through full ranges um, and, you know, do a little bit more work feeling better without niggles in the next phase. So I guess that's the first thing I had to say. The second thing we should touched on was um, exploring new movements and i think that's really important in this phase also to be able to um, use the equipment that you have at your disposal and explore like how much band tension you need for instance if you're using bands uh, what kind of how many reps you can kind of do on single leg work so you can kind of plan out where you're wanting to end up during the next phase or like you know for me doing pistol squats for instance to a box like i'm so bad at them like, you know, for me, if I did a couple of weeks of pistol squats, I'd realize like, okay, I'm probably not going to be able to load them. I'm probably not going to be able to get past like 15 reps per leg, but it's good to have that information to be able to use it in the next block, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, I actually neglected to mention this in my like little preamble when you spilt your Pepsi, Alex, um, which is that one of the reasons that we wanted to do this episode was because like having that sort of forward thinking mindset that Alex just, Alex just displayed is really, really helpful. I think like powerlifters generally are very goal oriented, like exercise is all well and good, but you want to say like, what's the actual path that I'm trying to take here? Like, why am I doing the things I'm doing? You know, how is this constructive? And so I think even when we're forced to do something like basically what I just told you to do was do like some moderate cardio a couple of days a week, do some light training in things that are completely not related to the powerlifts and just familiarize yourself with some exercise and don't work very hard. So if I said that to a powerlifter, sans context, they're going to be like, why the fuck would I waste my time doing any of the things you just said? They're terrible ideas, right? But if we can say, hey, like, this is our circumstances. 
here's a plan that actually allows me to feel like feel like I'm working constructively when I do all this stuff. Then suddenly you feel good about it and you can actually attack that training with some intent and like feel, yeah, feel reward, which I think is important. Right. So, so this, this whole episode should help you in that exercise of saying, what can I do now that's going to make me better later and make you more comfortable and happy in your training? So I think a, a good question will to be able to answer to your clients would be like, if you were to give your client this kind of uh, two week phase, for instance, mm-hmm. and they said, okay, well, what's the purpose of this? Like, what am I getting out of it? What would you, what would you reply with? Well, firstly, like I can rarely justify why I give my clients a program, even when it is very powerful related, uh, to be honest, like, you know, the monkey that I've trained to write my programs just writes whatever it writes down. And then they just Tom Clark. <laughs> Shout out to TC. Um, but no, the per- okay. The purpose of this phase. So I actually labeled it an active rest phase. I don't know if I used that exact phrase, um, the exact phrase when I introduced it, but that would be the purpose that I would describe it with to my clients. I'd be saying, look, like we've come off some hard training. We're in a new training environment. We're going to be here for a long time. So time isn't of the essence but you being fully recovered, feeling good and ready to train is absolutely going to be important. So this, this is about positioning us to train very productively later. And the things that are going to position us to train very productively in the upcoming hypertrophy phase is having sufficient conditioning, not having niggles and being familiar enough technically with the exercises that we are going to train that you can push yourself hard because in the short term future, I want you to be able to do that. So that's how I would frame it, Alex. Cool. Um, so you mentioned also that this phase would be suitable for someone who has just come off like some heavy work and is a little bit beat up or maybe competition or something to that effect. What if you had a lifter who was deep into like an off season, um, had already been doing substantial volume and had already built quite a nice work capacity. Would you just skip this phase and go straight to the next one or would you like shorten it or how would you go about that? Um, I got kind of mixed feelings because like on the one hand, if they've already got a lot of work capacity, then that's like half of the reason for doing this kind of gone. And if they're not carrying a lot of niggles and things, that's another decent part of the reason for doing it gone. But at the same time, like, you know, I'm not enormously pessimistic by nature, but like, I kind of don't think this lockdown's going anywhere in the next two weeks. So I also don't think there's like a great reason for us to rush anything. So if somebody came in and I was like, there's no real cost to us doing this and we still do get the benefits of being familiarized with exercise, just having a bit of a chill out, like recalibrating expectations, just getting comfortable in your new environment, I'd still be kind of inclined to do it. And if I was like really riding the fence, like Alex said, I might say, hey, we're going to tread water for one week and just go test these exercises. So we've got a vague idea of what we're going to do in the week coming, like you've already got a good base whack in some cardio, figure out what your training schedule is going to be like at home, do all those things, just the logistical stuff, but just do it in one week and then hit it from there. But I'd be somewhere between leaning towards just including it anyway, or just shortening it a lot, depending on the person I was talking to. What about you? Yeah, I would probably go the ladder and just um, cut the phase in half. Um, And mostly for the reason of, of motivation. I think it's been hard for people uh, in the first couple of weeks of lockdown to find training motivation. And then it's sort of, you sort of get used to it and you sort of build some habits and some routines. And then we're starting to see that uptick and improve. Um, so I think it would be mostly for that reason would be like, okay, just keep things easy, but still productive during this time. Um, acclimatize to 
your new environment. And then, you know, from there we can push on. For sure. I think that's a pretty reasonable answer as well. So second phase that I, um, that I plotted out. So I said that's like an active rest introductory phase. The second one I would call a general hypertrophy phase. And you could do this for however long you wanted. Although I think you would get to a point where you got pretty exhausted and sick of doing really similar training modalities. And one of the things that like when we're doing a normal hypertrophy phase, we have at our disposal to sort of make things a bit less stale is that we can vary rep ranges and we can let things get progressively heavier and then cut back and stuff. When you don't have as much headroom in your intensity, it just puts a bit of a cap on how long you're actually going to be excited about doing hypertrophy training for, even if we like change exercises and stuff. If you, if everything you do is going to be like 20 to 40 reps, you're not going to want to do it forever, but feasibly you could. Um, now in this time I'd be saying, you know, one to two time per week frequency per muscle group, like two would probably be better, but just depending on logistics, a couple of times a week, maybe one, if you have to, all your training should be very near failure. So with hypertrophy training, um, above a certain intensity threshold, it doesn't appear that you need to be super close to failure to maximize hypertrophy. You just need to be kind of within touch. But once you're getting below maybe 60% of 1RM, failure proximity is really, really important. So if we're doing a lot of body weight training or a lot of band training where we could realistically do 30 or 40 reps, then you probably want to be ensuring that all your sets are getting pretty close to failure to make them quite stimulative. Um, by necessity, as I was saying before, this is going to be a phase that includes a lot of movement variability um, as compared to normal powerlifting training. So that's probably going to be good from like a restorative standpoint. And in here, you could easily whack in some stuff that you consider prehab or addressing movement weaknesses and stuff as well. And then I would also have as optional conditioning in this, um, in this phase, some cardio and the cardio would be there partly for well-being, And because just generally we're all cooped up inside and our energy expenditure and stuff is down. And partly because that's going to help facilitate some of those like conditioning adaptations that we want to get from this training. Um, and yeah, I think that if you were to structure this well, meaning that you did, you know, somewhere between, I guess, five and 10 hardish sets per body part on somewhere between one and three occasions per week. So probably one to two is going to be most feasible when it's this type of training. If you were to do that and actually work really hard and plan it so that you could do so in a progressive fashion, it would actually be possible to make body composition improvements, not just sustain things um, during this time. So I think that's, that's really promising. Yeah, I think one of the big um, issues that people have is that they associate a lack of resistance, so as in load, mm. like as in literally bar weight, um, with things being easy. So I think it would be good if we could talk about some of the things that we can do to make things harder without actually adding resistance. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the first one is actually taking your sets close to failure. And like... It's a qualitatively very, very different experience. Right, let me let me stop you there. Yeah. I mean stuff like tempos and adding band tension and pausing and um, sort of training methods that are exclusive of just RPE because we know like we're going to have to take things close to failure, but it's mm. more about like a way of keeping the reps down so that the sets don't end up being like 40 reps plus, et cetera. Sure. Well, if I think tempo, I mean. yeah. Tempo is a good one. I mentioned this a few episodes ago in our 100,000 download special. I have a bit of a pocket theory that with very low relative intensities, that tempo is more important. 
um, because you have to produce more force to control your descent speed and force productions like, you know, a big part of the tension equation. So that, like that makes sense to me. So controlling your tempos will probably make reps more stimulative. It's also going to mean that you tire out quicker than if you just bounce around and use momentum. So controlling tempo is really important. Pauses, particularly pauses at the stretch position are also likely going to help. Um, but there's probably a point of diminishing returns with them. I think if you do pauses to the degree that you can't actually get through as much volume or even like comparable volume, it might not be as good for you. What you want to do is sort of pause just enough that you don't get the benefit of momentum coming, you know, out of the stretch position, but not pause for so long that any of that like stretch shortening cycle dissipates because then you're going to produce less force. Um, so, and when you already are controlling your descent, it probably means your pauses need to be like reasonably short. I don't think doing like say a five second pause at the bottom of your Bulgarian split squats is going to help you, but descending under control, pausing momentarily and coming up. Excellent idea. Um, if you are really, really limited in external resistance and you're really struggling to make an exercise hard, you can also include supersets and giant sets that stress certain body parts, but I don't think that they're, I think that that's like an avenue of last resort because again, you're sort of like deliberately really impacting your performance. But what you could do is um, change exercise order around. And there is some research now on exercise order and its impact on hypertrophy. And it doesn't appear to, doesn't appear to impact hypertrophy enormously much. What order you do your exercises in, but it does, it does impact strength adaptation. So obviously like when we're wanting to train for powerlifting, you want to do your powerlifts at the start of, at the start of a workout. But if you're just trying to train for like quad hypertrophy, um, you could do, you could do say, I don't know, like a bodyweight sissy squat at the start of your workout and fatigue your quads quite a bit and then do an exercise like say a split squat where you don't really have sufficient resistance to make them super, super hard normally, but because you're under fatigue, um, you know, they suddenly do become hard and that's probably just as good of a trade as doing it the other way around and finding your split squats to be too easy. Those are a couple of things. And then maybe a little bit more from out of left field is you could play around with some occlusion training as well. Um, so you can do, you can do occlusion training for your legs and arms. You can't really occlude the body unless you put something around your neck and that's a really bad idea. Shout out Michael Hutchins. Um, that's in excess, Alex, did you smirk? Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so you can do some occlusion training. Um, I've done occlusion training. I've never made a client do occlusion training, and it's not—it's not because I think it's like very high risk necessarily. Although, like, I'm not really thrilled about the concept of wrapping tools around my clients between sets and stuff. Um, it's more just because it's very, very unpleasant. But it does appear to really, really work for improving hypertrophy. And if you wrap something around. If you wrap something, say like a band is not a bad idea um, around a limb at like sort of five or six out of 10 tightness, not to the point where it's like going blue or anything, um, but there's just like, you know, enough of an occlusive effect that when you do really high reps, you get like a sickeningly bad pump. You can do that as well and get a lot more stimulation out of higher rep sets. Um, and that's going to tuck you out earlier than if you didn't have the occlusion there. But again, I think that's probably an avenue of last resort for most people because it's just a little bit intimidating and it's very, very unfamiliar and it feels really, really bad. But those are a few that come to mind. Alex, what about you? Yeah, the one that I was going to bring up, you sort of touched on there, which would be putting the isolation movement first. Um, and you could do this in a superset to sort of make that um, compound uh, a little bit harder. So 
Jacob Skeppers put up a video yesterday about um, doing banded peg flies. So he'd do his banded peg flies uh, first, and then he would do his push ups after the banded peg flies. And he, you know, reported that the push ups were much more difficult, and he uh, was uh, at his uh, RIR much quicker than he would be if he did them first. So that's one. That's one way. Um, yeah. So like you alluded to in normal programming, we would kind of avoid doing something like this because we want to get the most out of that compound lift as powerlifters because we want to build the strength in that lift. But now we're after stimulus for hypertrophy and for ma- for maintenance, or if we want to actually gain muscle. So it's important to sort of think a little bit outside the box and sort of challenge some of the ideas that we generally would use in programming. Mm. And I think another thing to consider with this type of stuff as well is, um, is actually trying to trying to track and structure progression. So, um, you know, when you have access to heavy weights, it's really easy to sort of like periodize reps and load and stuff and just basically get people lifting heavier over time. Um, but when you're like, you're probably not going to add much weight, um, much weight, then you'd have to start thinking like, am I going to aim for a total rep count that I beat week by week? Or am I going to say like, I'm going to add a set to this exercise when I can do a total number of reps on set one. And then like just do 90% of those reps for every other set after like you're going to reduce rest periods. Like how are you actually going to impose overload? Um, and doing that also just takes a little bit of skill as well because it's so unfamiliar for a lot of us. It's, it's sort of almost a matter of trial and error and saying like, how can I actually, how can I actually train this exercise as opposed to just do this exercise? How can I make myself better week by week? And how can I, with certain things that are harder to actually like measure well, how can I ensure that I'm applying a reasonably consistent stimulus? And so one example that comes to mind is like doing band tricep pushdowns. You can actually add stimulus or add load by just like moving your hand up the band in your resting position and sort of shortening the amount of band that you're stretching, which works great if you want to add load, but it also means that day by day, if you walk in and just grab the band any which way that it's going to, um, that it's not going to be the same. So you either have to mark the band or you have to be like much, much stricter on your reps and reserve in that to ensure that you're actually getting a pretty consistent stimulus each time you do it. So, so you've got to think a little bit about, yeah, structuring your training there as well. And because it is going to probably take more effort set by set for you to really, really push things very close to failure, because it is like I was saying before Alex rudely interrupted me, it is much more unpleasant to push things right up close to failure when they're very high reps. I do err towards saying probably do things slightly less frequently um, just to get like, just to not feel completely worn out by doing it unless you really love that shit, probably do things, you know, once, two times a week, only a few sets per exercise, push them really hard. That's what I think. Yeah. And I think, yeah, um, bringing up the RPE discussion, I think now is a really good time to sort of, if you haven't used RPE um, in your own training before, it's a really good time to familiarize yourself with sort of how far you can push it and learning about like what, what really one or two or three reps in reserve really feels like. Mm, For sure. Um, And I think also just realizing that like, even if you are familiar with RPE, that your ability to appraise RPE is still going to suffer a bit when you do exercises that are really novel and rep ranges that are really novel to you too is important. So don't just go for something that's like subjectively similar to how it feels for you to push a set of eight to eight or nine RPE. 
like actually play around with it and say, where is my 10 in the 30 rep range? What does it feel like? And you'll be very surprised how different it is. But that's great. That just teaches you more about training and your response to it. And it'll help you with your ability to self-coach in future exercises too or future training phases. Yeah, and it can be a good tool that you can use um, for the last set of each session just to sort of test where you're at and whether you were accurate with your RPEs. So like you might do two sets to a two RIR with your final set being an AMRAP. And if you get, you know, more than two reps on that final, um, more than two reps more than your first two sets on that final set, then, you know, you can act accurately say that you weren't really judging your RPE effectively. Yeah, for sure. And right. it can also be a good tool for measuring improvement as well. Yeah, for sure. I think those are really salient points. So my, um, so I sort of said you can do this phase pretty much indefinitely. Um, but I also said that like after a while you're going to get sick. So what you might do is structure things in three or four week blocks where you aim to hit rep PBs across each block in certain exercises, substitute them for different exercises, do it again. But if you do that for six or eight or 10 weeks, you're going to probably start saying, okay, I'm pretty sick of just going in and doing hard sets of 20 and I want to change things up. So the next phase that I wrote just before, um, just before you go to the next phase, Will, um, would deloading be something that we would need to consider during this phase or would we be able to go right through with eight weeks or so? No, I think you would need to deload or at least back cycle still. Um, just because you're not lifting heavy weights doesn't mean it's not still hard when you're training. And if you're like trying to push for adaptations, you're going to accrue some fatigue. Um, it might be, like I said, subjectively a little bit different from lifting heavy, but it's still going to wear at you. And so, yeah, I would still include, I would still include deloads, but obviously like in this instance, we're not going to be able to deload by massively reducing resistance. So how we might do it is sort of plan to go three or four weeks of really pushing and then, you know, the fourth or fifth week that we make our deload, we might just drop a set and then drop back to only doing 60 or 70% of the reps that we did in, in each of the exercises on the way through. But I do think including a deload would be prudent, um, particularly like if you, are, if you have actually really tried to push things for a couple of weeks leading into it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then, like I was saying, you might get bored after eight or 10 weeks. So then an idea might be to include what I've called a transfer phase. Um, and I'd say you'd want to do this for a minimum of three weeks. And I said, you could do it till whenever. Although what I realistically think would happen, um, is after about probably I'm spitballing here, but after maybe like three to five weeks, the actual like improvements that you're getting from doing this stuff would probably really dry up. Um, and you'd be basically just maintaining your muscle and strength by doing this. So at this point, I would think it would be better to start alternating this in a general hypertrophy phase, maybe throwing an active rest if you ever just feel you need it for some reason. But what a transfer phase would include is a couple of, um, a couple of training modalities that actually allow us to try and express really high forces. And so a general structure of a session might include some type of an activation drill. So something where you're going to get that post-activation potentiation effect, um, Man, we've got so much like alliteration in this podcast, by the way, Alex. We got periodization, isolation. We got post-activation potentiation. Um, we got reviews of reviews. So in this instance, you've got, I would say, start with an activation drill. So examples might be like plyo push-ups, um, box jumps, or broad jumps, depending on what your main movement pattern you're training is. So that was that was bench press, squat, and deadlift, respectively. 
Um, and so for them, because they're an activation drill, you do reasonably low reps, you aim to be explosive, right? Um, do them for a few sets just to get yourself really warmed up. And then once you've got that sort of happy effect going, you could then go into some max effort isometrics. Um, and I guess the alternative would be to literally alternate these, like do a set of plyo push-ups and then go into a, a max effort isometric 40 seconds later. That could be great too. Um, now the reason I put isometrics in here. So isometrics are actually pretty effective at increasing strength. Um, an isometric, by the way, is where you do a muscle contraction, but the muscle doesn't actually change length. So if you were to push against an immovable object, you're producing force at the muscle, but the muscle length doesn't change, you're doing an isometric. If you pull a deadlift bar into the pins in a rack as hard as you can, that's an isometric. Um, if, you were to, if you were to stand under a 400 kilo yoke and you squat 200 and you try and stand the yoke up like a squat and it doesn't move, but you're pushing as hard as you can, that's also an isometric. So you, you do your post-activation. Let, let me stop you there, Will. Yeah. Can you give some examples that, um, of isometrics that people could do at home given they don't have lots of load because yeah, the, sure. exa the examples that you've just mentioned require obviously a lot of load. Yeah. Um, so actually probably the cleverest ones of these I've seen recently have been by our friend Amir Fazeli, who was on episode two and what he's got, I think it, they look like hockey straps, like the straps you put a surfboard on the roof of your car with. And he forms loops in them that sit over his shoulders and then he stands on the other end of the strap. Right. And then he, and he gets himself into like a, a kind of half squat position and he can do a squat against those straps where he pushes as hard as he can. Obviously the straps don't change length, right? But he's got something to push against. So if you can set yourself up something like that, you can do an isometric for the squat. For the bench press, you can do something really similar. Um, you can lie on the floor and have those straps sitting like under your back. Or if you have access to a bench, even easier, you just wrap it around the bench. Um, and then you put it around some type of an implement that's in your hand, whether it's a broomstick or a barbell, and then you can push up against that. And again, you've got the strap between you and the floor. You're pushing as hard as you can. So you have an isometric there. And then for a deadlift, you can either stand on the straps and put the other straps around an implement. So your broomstick or your barbell, or you can literally go out and bend over and grab the bumper of your car, I guess. But like, um, but if you're doing a squat one, the deadlift one is probably less necessary or like, yeah, less absolutely necessary, still good. But again, either stand on the straps and pull against them or go and pull against something very, very heavy. Um, so those would be a few examples you can do at home. I'm, I'm less sure about just going and randomly pushing against a household object, to be honest, because if you just put yourself in a position that's so, so dissimilar to the competition lifts, you're probably not going to find yourself actually doing a really effective isometric. But those are a few examples. Now, I was saying that can be really, really effective for improving strength in spite of the fact you don't move, but they're, um, they're kind of specific to the joint angles that you train. So I can't actually remember, I can't remember what the range is with this. It's something like 15 or 30 degrees. I want to say like 15 degrees either side of the joint angle that you do the isometric at. So if you go to like a quarter squat and you, and you do an isometric from there, you're going to be really strengthened in that position. And then to some degree in the 15 degrees above and below it in your squat range of motion, you're probably not going to get as much transfer. If you go from, if you do an isometric at the very top of your squat range of motion, that's not going to transfer into the hole at all. 
So probably the best thing to do if you're going to do these is figure out a way to rig up your isolation so that, oh, your isometric, sorry, so that you are pretty close to where you would normally stick in an exercise and push as hard as you can there. And your goal should be to produce as much force as possible. So it's not just like hold it against that thingy for a little bit. It's literally maximum effort, maximum intent, right? Because you are still doing a max effort contraction at the muscle there. You're still wiring yourself neurally to, to perform maximum force tasks. So that's one of the reasons you can increase, um, increase transfer by including them. Um, so when we go about programming these, how many sets of how many seconds would we be looking at? I'm actually not certain. Um, and I haven't ever really done isometric work with my clients normally because I'd say they're kind of redundant um, when we just have access to weights. But when you think about like a max effort lift in powerlifting, it takes a number of seconds, you know, probably takes like three to five seconds for most people to do a max rep, maybe longer in Alex's case when it's a third deadlift. Um, so, so number one, it's got to be probably longer than a few seconds. And then number two is it actually takes a little bit of time for us to reach peak force output. And I don't know exactly what that time frame is, but I'm betting it's also three to five seconds or more. So what I think would be best is to do a max effort, a max effort isometric for probably around 10 seconds. So around double that time or until you find yourself involuntarily producing less force. And you'll know, like if you're pulling as hard as you can against something and you're still trying, but you're not pulling as hard anymore. Like you just, you can feel it when you get to that point, you've probably done an isometric for long enough. So I'm betting that's going to be close to 10 seconds, but I don't know for sure. Um, and then in terms of how many sets, Again, I don't know, but if it's anything like normal strength training, then one is probably enough to get you a little bit of adaptation and, you know, maybe enough to get you a little bit of an improvement if you're really undertrained. but probably doing like three or four is an actual sweet spot for like a decent training dose. Um, and I suspect that if you're going to do these with any level of like high effort, you're also going to need a few minutes of rest between them as well. Um, so my, my, like my guessing guideline would be do two to four sets of about 10 seconds or as hard as you can go until you stop doing it hard with a few minutes of rest in between them. That would yeah, be my one, guess. One uh, protocol that I've seen from Adam Jones, who is a high level lifter in Singapore used to be um, with powerlifting Australia. Um, he has done uh, isometric deadlifts with his TRX. So he wraps TRX around his legs and, um, gets to like conventional position uh, just below the knee and pulls and holds it for as long as he can uh, for, for five seconds. And then he has five seconds off, five seconds on, five seconds off, five seconds on. So three, lots of five seconds is one set. Right. Well, and like, I'm not, I'm not too sure how many sets he's been doing, but that's kind of what his guideline for one set is. Well, like there's no reason in my mind that, that couldn't work. And when it like, you know, the recommendation I gave was very much like a, this is what I think this would be my starting point. Um, so you could probably start with either of those protocols. Um, and if you were like, this just doesn't feel quite right, then I'm sure if you just followed your intuition, you'd land somewhere good. But my recommendation is pretty tentative. It's not based on any literature and there's a good chance that he's actually thought about it and done a little, done it a little bit more. So I guess if you were to do like five seconds on five seconds off in the case of say a deadlift, you know, for say three or four reps, that's almost like doing three or four really hard reps in a set, right? Yeah. You know, so like that, I can sort of see the logic underpinning that as well. Um, 
So then what you would do right in these sessions is you've done some general activation work and isometrics, either alternating them or one into the next. And then after you've done that, you'd still follow it up with some of your general hypertrophy work. So the stuff that you were doing in your previous phase, but in this instance, you've already preceded that with some high force output stuff. And I would in this instance also have one time per week where you're doing like the isometrics for each lift, right? So one like high, high force output, high effort thingy, but then give yourself probably a couple of times a week exposure to each movement pattern. So what it might look, look like for your day, you do squat isometrics is you do some box jumps, squat isometrics, and then your hypertrophy work might include some type of hinge pattern, some type of single legged pattern and any other lower body stuff that you feel you need. And then on your deadlift day, you might do broad jumps, deadlift isometrics, and then your, your accessory work might begin with like, you know, a sissy squat or a goblet squat or something like that. And then into whatever leg, leg accessories you need. Bench, you might be able to do two different isometric protocols or isometrics twice, or you might just do it once and have one day that's pure hypertrophy day. But you could do that and then you get two exposures a week to each movement pattern. Um, so yeah, that's that would be an example of a transfer phase. And in terms of like periodizing the rest of your work, um, with your activation work and your isometrics, I'm not really sure how you would periodize that to improve it or whether you'd even need to, to be honest. But with the rest of your stuff, you'd follow similar progression and periodization rules as you would with your general hypertrophy stuff. And so the reason I say that this might be self-exhausting is like you might find that you do it for like, you know, three, four, five or six weeks. And, and at the end, you're like, I'm not jumping any higher onto this box. I'm pulling really hard against this strap, but I don't feel like I'm any more locked in or stronger doing it than I was two weeks ago or whatever. And, you know, I'm just going through the motions of my hypertrophy work. That could be a great time to stop like let that stuff freshen up, just put it aside and just do dedicated hypertrophy stuff again and then reintroduce it after another like six weeks and, you know, maybe vary say what your activation work was or change your, change your isometric work protocol at that stage. Um, yeah. So that's, that's an idea for a transfer phase. So I have a slight criticism of your transfer phase, Bill. Go on. Um, we spoke about not being able to, uh, train maximal strength and that's a good idea to work on maintaining or building muscle, improving body composition, work capacity, etc. Mm. Um, what is the real point of doing this kind of transfer phase if we really can't add, add any kilos to our one rep max during this phase anyway? Like, is it just purely for fun or is there actually um, an adaptation that we're after? Well, like the main important reason, to be honest, is for fun and variety. So like I said, eventually you're going to get pretty sick of and find the hypertrophy stuff stale. And I think it's nice to be able to say, here's something that is still goal-directed that is fun. That's number one. Number two... And also just makes someone feel like a powerlifter for once. Yeah, for sure. Number two um, is that even though we can't necessarily express improvements in maximal strength in the power lifts, depending on your level of development, that's not to say that the stuff that you do in say this transfer phase, particularly the isometric work is not going to actually transfer to improvement in the lifts. So you may actually find that if you do some deadlift isometrics at mid shin, if that's where you're really bad at deadlifting, that if you do that on top of having built some muscle, you actually do improve your force production in that position in a way that is going to be highly transferable. 
Um, and again, you're not going to be able to test it straight away. And if you then go back to general hypertrophy, you never really realize those gains, but it doesn't mean they're not still there or that you won't maintain them. Um, so I do like, I don't think that they're completely without merit. And if you're really, really early in your powerlifting career, like you could actually get probably measurably stronger at the squat by doing just some isometric work in here. Maybe not, oh, you know, the squat or the bench or the deadlift, I should say. Um, not at your level, say Alex, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to be completely worthless for people who are earlier in their career. And then the third thing is that um, on top of just finding the earlier hypertrophy work stale, um, you know, doing this change up, it might, it might refresh you mentally, but off the top of my head, I believe that isometric work actually can assist in hypertrophy and not, not to like the same degree as doing straight sets and stuff, but it is another avenue for which you can still push a little bit of growth onto yourself. And it is just one step more specific. So I don't think, I don't think in any respect, it's a waste of time and maybe like the least good reason, um, the least good reason might be that actually practicing power production. So, you know, the activation drills and just like force development qualities, the isometric drills, they might contribute to dynamic strength. I think the power one is the most tenuous because I think it more goes that strength feeds into power than power feeds into strength. But you're still, you're still training some motor qualities that are tangentially related to powerlifting in a way that might transfer. Anyway, so the, the way I'd wrap that all up is the most important reason is to keep you sane and keep you enjoying training. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was one step more specific than a general hypertrophy phase or worth considering including unless there were avenues through which I think it could actually transfer to improve performance. And I do actually think there's a number. I just don't think that you're going to realize it until you actually get a bar in your hands after. That was a really good answer. Um, you touched on it, but the importance of staying engaged with training is really, really important during these times, particularly when we don't have a lot of equipment at our disposal. Mm. And if it, if it gets you excited to train um, for a couple of weeks, two, three, four weeks, whatever it is. Um, and then you go back into your general hypertrophy phase, you know, with more excitement, you're going to put more into that phase again. So, you know, they can kind of feed into each other like that as well, which I think is probably overlooked. Yeah. And actually, Alex, this is a really like, this is a bizarre thing, but actually something I've noticed in the past, like few weeks training at home, I haven't done isometrics, but, um, but like what I realized is oftentimes when I'm just lifting in the gym, I actually like don't try as hard as I can rep by rep. Like I know that if I'm going to do a set of Bulgarian split squats with 30 kilos per hand, I can do 10 reps and the first five aren't going to be hard and I'll just do five reps. And then like by the end of the set, it's actually hard. And like, I'm trying my hardest for one rep. So, um, and you know, I could even say the same for deadlifts. Like I might deadlift 70 or 80% of my one rep max do a triple. And it's like, oh, uh, you know, like I'm lifting, it's effortful, but I'm not really trying my hardest rep one, even when I maybe should. But when you get the chance to do, when you get the chance to do something like an isometric, where literally the only, the only feedback you have of your execution isn't the weight goes up. It's like, it's how hard can I pull? What a lot of people will find, and this is something like I have done a little bit of isometric work before. What a lot of people will find is they'll start doing something and be like, this is hard as I can go. And then they'll really quickly be like, actually, I can lift a little bit harder than that. And you really get like a good sensation of what true strain is. And it can kind of like teach you to actually apply the maximum force you can possibly apply every single rep. 
So it's also sort of just like a self-awareness and skill thing, just like rating RPE to learn like, what is it like to truly try your hardest every rep? And if you want to maximize your returns on all your training, you should probably be doing that. Yeah. And it's a similar idea to when you get someone who's new to powerlifting specifically and has never done like a true one RM or anything. Mm. Like they don't know what the, what the feeling is of like really straining and grinding against the weight is like until they actually do it. hundred percent. So that's all I had down for that one case study. I'm going to just do a very quick recap while Alex preps the second one, which will be quicker than that one. So, so basically what I was saying is you probably can't train for maximal strength in the powerlifts because you don't have access to maximal weights, but that doesn't mean that you can't do some stuff that's really good base building. So you might consider doing some hypertrophy training, building some general conditioning for later training, addressing any weaknesses and niggles that you have. Um, and then when we talk about a phasic plan that you could actually put together to get you better the whole way across, you might think of having an active rest phase that prepares you for hard training, a general hypertrophy phase where we really try and squeeze out as much as we can from light weights, put on some muscle. And then when you get sick of that, or when you just exhaust all your options, you move into a transfer phase where you include some high force production stuff. So some power work and some isometric stuff on top of that hypertrophy base until you feel that you're not improving at the high force output stuff again, and then you just rinse and repeat. Alex, number two. Cool. So the second case study is someone who has access to a bar, plates, and a rack, but only up to about 60%, uh, 60 to 70% of their one around for squats. So I guess we'll start from, we'll go from the top. Mm-hmm. So what training is off the table and which adaptations are unlikely feasible? So like if you only have 60 to 70% of your one RM, we're obviously still below that threshold where we're really going to train effectively for maximum strength for the squat and presumably the deadlift, unless you deadlift heaps less than your squat. Um, but if you've got that much weight, unless you're an absolute bench monster, you can almost certainly train your bench for a full cycle. So you can almost consider your bench training unlimited if you have that stuff, which is really great. Um, now, if you happen to have some bands tension as well, if you only have 60 or 70% of your squat, but you have quite a lot of band tension, you can actually still make your deadlift training reasonably challenging. Um, so, you know, up enough to like pretty heavy loads, but we're not going to get that like specific one RM strength in the competition lifts for squat or deadlifts. But with the equipment that you have at your disposal in that instance, you can do nearly unlimited hypertrophy work. Like you're, you're now at the point where you shouldn't just be capped by your ability to progress loads. So you can do just conventional hypertrophy training really well. And you can do heaps of really good general strength work as well. And it might be that you won't be able to do the competition lift, but you might be able to pick variations where your max is a lot lower. So, you know, for the squat, the best example that comes straight to mind is like a front squat. Um, Most people, (laughs) Alex hates front squats, but most people, can't front squat more than 70, 75% of their one RM for their main squat. Um, Alex's or, or, 50. Size, or 50. So if you're that bad at front squats, they might not be the most transferable lift for you. But if you want to expose yourself to some high effort squats in sets of three or five or something, you might be able to do that with front squats. Similarly, say a pause squat or a pin squat or something like that as well. If you're much weaker at them, you can address that disparity a little bit. Um, and then you also just have all the alternative options at your disposal that the body weight example has too. Yeah. Another good, um, a good use of slightly less weight would be increasing range. Mm. So if you're someone who squats low bar in flat shoes, you might put the bar higher on your back, put some heels on, go a narrower stance, 
get your knees way forward and really hammer your quads that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one thing that you didn't mention, Will, was uh, technique work. So we've mentioned a lot on this podcast that we like to drill technique work in that 60 to 70% range a lot of the time. So that could be slowing down the tempo, adding long pauses, um, tempo in both directions, et cetera, et cetera. Those things, are still, where, those things are still on the table in this instance. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, one place where Alex and I might differ just a little bit is I don't just consider technique work as practice. So as in my goal when I give somebody a technique technique day, as opposed to a day that's like truly like just a recovery super easy day, is the technique work I give should still be hard enough and heavy enough that it is similar to the to the main lifting that they do and punishes them for doing it wrong. So as in, and we've spoken about this on episodes before, like there's no point in me telling somebody who squats 200 kilos to go squat a broomstick because it's just not similar. Um, so if you have 60 to 70% of your one RM at your disposal, you can probably still do some work that's targeted at technique. And particularly if like Alex said, you choose some intelligent variations that punish you for the places that you fall out of position in your lifts or give you really good augmented feedback on your lift. Like that's great, but that's that in my mind, that's still secondary to actually doing some hard training. And part of the thing that actually supports technique work is still developing the strength in those positions too. So I think technique work is like a distant second to general strength and hypertrophy adaptations here because you have to strengthen the positions and have the muscles that support the positions that you want. And then the technique work is just augmented feedback of mistakes that you made and it still needs to be hard. It's not just perfect practice. I guess a good way to utilize technique work in this instance, let's say you do squat 200 kilos and you have 70% of your 1RM. So you've got 140 kilos. You could do three sets of five with a three second eccentric and a one second pause, which would be actually reasonably challenging. At be quite hard. And then you could follow that up with three sets of 10 low bar or something yeah, for like sure. that. Yeah. Great idea. Um, or, you know, you could have them split onto two separate days or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so those are the things that you can do. And then I guess the next question would be to say like, well, what's a, what's like a general path towards us improving as powerlifters. And in this instance, I would basically say you just follow a similar path to number one, except that you've got so many more tools at your disposal that suddenly like all of your planning becomes easier. So you may still include that active rest base, albeit you could have a little bit of barbell work and stuff in there if you wanted. Um, but you'd have the same priorities, you know, get yourself healthy, build some conditioning, have a break. Then you go into a hypertrophy phase. Like Alex said, you should be thinking of like manipulating the technique of your exercises and so on to actually make them maximally effective for hypertrophy. But you basically could do a really traditional hypertrophy phase. If you've got up to 70% of your one rep max and you choose a variation like, you know, narrow stance, knees really forward, high bar, where you're 20%, 20% weaker, say, and suddenly that 70% is 85%. You can literally go from training like, you know, 12s all the way through to like pretty hard sixes with just a load at your disposal on that lift, give or take you getting much better at it. But like you can basically just plan a really simple hypertrophy phase. And if you need to extend it, you can also like add more constraints to the movement as you go, because you know that you aren't going to be able to keep adding weight over time. So you might, you might actually begin by doing like, you know, 12, 10, eight on more or less the competition lift and then repeat 12, 10, eight slightly harder. So, you know, high bar, close stance or whatever it happens to be. But you can do lots and lots of hypertrophy work. You can also just choose non-powerlifting accessories. 
if you got that much weight, you can do pretty much anything you want. So that's awesome. Lots of hypertrophy. And then when you think about the transfer phase, you could do really, really similar things to what I described before, but you might also on your alternate days include some, um, some lower rep work in the competition lifts. And you could do that to drill technique, like Alex said, and just really, really grease that groove um, and practice moving weights really quickly so that you do feel like you're really, really like you're kind of in the groove, moving weights really well um, for powerlifting. And then that leaves you in a really good spot for when you can actually reintroduce some heavier training down the track. So in that instance, I think like the world's open to you. What else do you see as hugely different um, from one to two uh, things that you haven't already mentioned? Um, in like, in some respects, because you are doing the movement patterns, I think you'll find like in both instances, we'll get to this in a second, but in both instances, when you reintroduce powerlifting training, you're going to see a pretty rapid uptick in your competency. But I think for, for number one, you're going to start from a lower base. So when you're introducing, you're going to have to start lower for number two, like you're already squatting and deadlifting. You'll probably find that you can actually make pretty quick jumps when things come back. And because you'll also be quite conditioned to powerlifting work, you'll be ready to do more volume of normal training when the constraints are lifted. But beyond that, I think in concepts, they're really similar. Is there something that I've forgotten that leaps out at you? Uh, not at all. But I think, did you mention the first phase with case study two? Yeah, I the, did. Uh, I did. How, how important would you consider that um, if, you, if someone can pretty much go back into regular training, you know, with 60 to 70% of their loads, mm. how important would you consider that uh, active recovery phase at the start? Could you just get rid of it completely? Yeah. It's similar to how I answered this question when you said like somebody who's deep in an off season block last time, um, you could just do away with it, but I also don't think that there's much cost in including it. And what you might do is similar to what we agreed on for the last time as well is just shorten it a little bit and say, okay, like, we're still in a new training environment. We still might need to adapt some of the exercises that you're doing. Um, let's just take it easy for one week, figure out a few of these baseline things, you know, have a bit of a rest and hopefully your body's going to be feeling really good when we lead into stuff. If you're going into a super general hypertrophy phase, having come from anything like specific powerlifting training, you're still going to be including deliberately like a bunch of movement variety and new movement patterns and things. So there's still probably some benefit to it, but it's not as crucial at all. No. Yeah, I tend to agree. All right. Um, all right. So let's go into if we ha if someone has a full setup, for instance, like what you or I have access to, mm. um, we have up to basically 100% or I have up to 100% one around for everything that I would need. Right. And you're similar? No, nah, not quite. I've got, I've got up to about 85% one RM on squat, about 70% on deadlift and not much on... Oh, bench, I've got like more than I could ever need. So I'm sweet. I think um, Paragon have some, some more plates if you want to go and get some. I, I actually think the biggest concern for me now, thank you, um, it's off topic. I think the biggest concern for me now is that I'm lifting on a tiled floor. And so if I put down, even though I've got padding down, if I put down much heavier than I have now, particularly with metal plates, I'm concerned that I'm going to like crack it. Um, they, but, also have, they also may have some more flooring if you need to. Shoot Nick a message. Yeah, I might talk to Nick. Okay, anyway. So <laughs> so we're talking about having a full setup and then the question is basically what could you do? Um, and I guess like obviously if you have a really full setup, you could train at normal. 
And if you really enjoy training as normal, then there's absolutely no reason not to. Um, the only thing that I would like caution you against is, and not even caution you against, it would just, it would be to say like, maybe consider what purpose this serves. It would be peaking. Um, in the absence of competition, you're not really going to like get yourself better by peaking. Um, and it is a lot of extra stress. And particularly if you're training alone or just like, you know, in an unfamiliar environment, it might present a little bit more of a safety concern to lift really, really heavy loads for no reason. So what I'd be inclined to do is instead of peaking, just like shorten your cycles a little bit, maybe not taper. You could still do some type of like a truncated test just to see where you're at and then restart your training cycles. Um, but otherwise you can basically train as normal. The only other thing you might consider though, is like if your whole training environment and your training routine has been upended, it could also be like just a forced opportunity for you to change and address some weaknesses or some, some things in your current training approach that you don't normally and just try and build yourself as a more complete athlete anyway. Because like we've said so many times this whole episode, there's like, there's not an impending competition for pretty much anyone right now. So even if you can train absolutely utterly normally, maybe it's worth your time thinking about like, Hey, what is, what are just some glaring weaknesses that I have that could hold me back, whether it's holding me back today or whether it's the type of thing that might cap me in six months as a powerlifter that I could address in my training. And maybe you could just include a bit of that. Alex. Yeah, I definitely think that is a really important consideration. And that's something that I've started to do. Um, like I've mentioned uh, with the unilateral work and the stability stuff and the balance stuff and extra core training at the moment. Um, I've already found that super beneficial and I'm improving quite quickly, which I think is, mm been really enjoyable um and also like i know that it's going to help me um down the track but i tend to agree with you in that i would kind of bias things towards um higher volumes and general strength work as opposed to sort of peaking and doing a testing um and then sort of keep yourself like training heavy enough that you know once gyms reopen and competitions get announced you can sort of jump into a competition prep in six to ten weeks um you know, right away. Mm. I think I think that's a good approach. But I also think we need to consider um, how we begin our training cycle when we first start training during this time. And I think it's important that we take into account the environment and what effect that has on um, the loads that we can lift. Because I've, I've found that most people are demotivated even when they have a full setup because, you know, the act of going to the gym and training with people you know, in a familiar environment, et cetera, actually improves performance um, until you get used to your new surroundings. So for me, like my first couple of weeks of training at home, I felt really weak and demotivated. So it was a good idea to keep things relatively light and sort of ease me into it. So I think that's an important consideration as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. And also just like, aside from just thinking about how much you can lift, it's also, it's also worth considering that if, if your motivation has taken a bit of a dive, then you don't want to plan training that's really, really ambitious volume wise as well. Like some people, people seem to go one of two ways. So I know you and Chrissy are saying that your sessions are much shorter now because you're just getting through the work. Um, and it might be in your case that you could actually have more ambitious sessions and really enjoy it. But for myself personally, like I'm liking training at home. Um, but but it is still taking a little bit more effort on my part to get myself up and actually go and train than normal. So if I got a program that said like do five sets of eight, even if the eights were something that I know I could cream, I'd be much less enthused about doing it than just doing three sets. 
And so probably starting conservative in every respect until you do have the habits set up that make training just an easy process that happens automatically is probably a good idea too. Yeah. That's something that I'm going to have a chat with JP about is slowly adding in sets throughout the weeks. Um, because I'm starting, like I said, I found it a lot harder at the start and now I'm finding it really comfortable and I'm actually really starting to enjoy it. And I think I can do a little bit more, Mm. but with that said, it's not like you can jump from three to five sets or, you know, eight to 16 sets across a week or whatever, whatever metric you use. Um, it's gotta be gradual. Yeah, definitely. And you know, even for me, like when I first started training from home, the contrast between my easy and hard day was like much greater than it is now four weeks down the track. And I almost felt like I needed it, even though the training was on paper so, so easy. I just wasn't ready for it. Whereas now, like just going in and doing some more uniform training difficulty is fine. Um, The final topic that we were going to talk about was reintroducing heavy training. So if you are not used to doing like heavy lifting at all, let alone in the competition lifts, when you go back to doing it, you're going to get sore. And it doesn't matter like how, how experienced of a lifter you are or how much you've normally lifted in the competition lifts, you're going to get really sore. So, um, so I would be very, very cautious of going in, even if you've done a lot of very productive training and just whacking on like 80% of your one rep max and doing five sets of five. Um, and also on top of that, the chance of you sustaining an injury is going to be much, much higher if your workloads spike acutely. That's something we spoke to Jamie Smith about way back. I don't even know when, um, last year sometime. So, so I would say it's a really good idea to start with very conservative volumes of the competition lifts. Even if you, even if you've got that baseline high volume of body weight work and stuff that you've been doing, say you're the person from example one, I would still introduce the competition lifts very conservatively. And I would just add that little bit of volume in on top of the base that you're already accustomed to. So a couple of the predictors of muscle damage and soreness are exercise novelty, meaning like, doing new exercises or ones you haven't been doing in a while, hence the competition lifts being a concern, um, but also massive changes in like the qualitative loading or like that, that meaning like, you know, jumping from doing sets of 30 to doing sets of five, even if the sets of five are like comparatively not harder than the thirties, you're still going to get really sore. So when you're introducing that element in your training that is novel, do so in a fashion that's really, really easy, leave the rest of your training more or less as is and just slowly titrate volume across from one to the other as the weeks go on that would be a good idea and then as you're doing that the intensity is going to creep up as well and you'll start to see some of the transfer from the adaptations you've worked from um worked from in your time off and then the final thing and um i do have to acknowledge i listened to an episode that was a little bit similar in nature to this but not the same of iron culture something eric oh so you're ripping stuff off now are you absolutely not um Something that Eric Helms are you, said. Uh, are you going to talk about the same topic? Because I wanted to p- touch on a few points there. Yeah, it's uh, it's on the same topic. I might as well finish the thought once I've started right. it. Um, on the topic of volume, what Eric said, he told a story that was really interesting about having having a number of months off squatting, like a year off squatting because of injury, and then reintroducing squatting and doing like nearly no sets for a prolonged period of time and seeing his performance increase and increase and increase. A lot of people are going to be inclined to jump right back into doing like the same levels of volume that they were doing pre-closures. 
because that's what they've typically done and it was getting them better. But an observation Eric made that I thought was really salient was like, don't really add the volume until, until things are actually starting to slow down. Like if you find that, you know, you've gone from doing no squats at all to doing three sets of squats on two days a week, that's still not an unreasonable amount of squatting to do. And you've got your other hypertrophy work and stuff around it. Ride that out. See how long it takes for you to stall. And what you might observe is you actually make really good gains on pretty moderate volumes for quite a while. So there's no need to like preemptively make things way, way harder than they have to be if you're still going along at a good rate. Um, Alex, what were you going to say? So I wanted to touch on uh, reintroducing the competition loops first. Yeah. So I think the way that I would go about doing it was let's say you have, let's say you have your two uh, days per week where you train like certain muscle groups. So let's yeah. say, let's use a squat as an example. So let's say your main squat, you know, during lockdown is a goblet squat with a band added. That's your main squat. Yeah. I would keep that in as the secondary day squat and yeah. I'd bring in the main lift on the main day. Great idea. And then I would do the same thing with the other two lifts. So for instance, uh, maybe your uh, bench press variation is a banded, banded deficit push-up. So I'd keep that in on the secondary day and then I'd add the bench press in on the main day. And I'd probably follow that for about a month and then I'd swap them out again. Yeah. Um, and then I would swap the accessories out again in the following block. So then in about 12 weeks time or eight to 12 weeks time, your training starts to resemble what it looked like before lockdown. So it's a kind of slow, gradual process going from what we were doing during lockdown to going to what we were doing before. Yeah, but I think it's um, probably important to say when we say that it's not like eight to 12 weeks until you're doing anything productive in that time, yeah. like intensity is still creeping up and stuff. Yeah. And it might be that in 12 weeks you're actually hitting PRs on everything, yeah. but it's like taken that long to get rid of the last vestiges of your training from lockdown. Right. Well, yeah, that's right. And the next point was, um, Oh, sorry. Also to add on to the last point, like I mentioned earlier, those movement variabilities and that extra stuff that keeps us fresh and hap and um, sort of happy, mm. that stuff doesn't just disappear now we get benefit from that. We can keep that stuff in year round. So don't feel like you have to go completely back to what you were doing before. If you found something during this time, which has helped you. Yeah, I think that's, sure. an, I think that's an important point. Um, the next point is progressing the main lifts. So if you are someone who uses um, RPE, you may want to begin with like we'll mention less sets, but also at a lower RPE. So if you were doing say three sets of eight at an RPE of eight, you might want to start with like two sets of eight and RP of six. And then over a certain period of time, gradually get to that dosage that you wanted. Um, yep. If you are someone who uses percentages, you can do one of two things. You can either start with a lower percentage than you usually would, or you can bring down your training max considerably. Um, and then, and then in the percentage example, you probably want to take slightly bigger jumps than you usually would. Um, so maybe if you usually take five kilo jumps from week to week, you might want to take seven and a half or 10 kilo jumps from week to week to sort of get you back up to baseline a little bit quicker. Agreed on all fronts there. Yeah. I don't really have anything to add. All right. Cool. That more or less wraps it up. So Alex, do you want to give, I always love asking you to do this, give the like 30 second summary of the lessons from this episode. And then we're going to take a break and do our segment that we invented, overrated, underrated, or properly rated. 
Go on. You got the you got the order right that time too. Well yeah, done. I try. Well, I didn't want to do it wrong because now that I've realized that other podcasts invented it and it's not just you that I'm upsetting when I say it wrong, I really feel an obligation to get it right. No, but you know what? You know what we did invent is putting the word overrated first. Every other podcast uses underrated first. So it really well, is. No wonder, no wonder I say it like that because it's the correct way to do it. All right. No, I'm just go. joking. Um, so I think the first thing is to realize that your goals are going to be slightly altered during this period, but that doesn't mean that you are doing things that aren't productive. So there's always going to be things that you can work on and there's always going to be deficiencies that you do have as a lifter that you can still address during this time. So we're going to take a slight step back from improving maximal strength and we're going to improve the qualities that all sort of combine to maximal strength in the end. Um, as far as um, going back to training, I think when you when we have gyms that are open again, we just need to be a little bit careful with going back to normal training. Um, you're going to reduce your rate of injury. You're going to um, reduce the soreness that you have, and you're actually going to adapt a little bit better if we are a little bit more cautious with how much volume and how difficult our training is. Um, Excellent summary. Is that about it? I wasn't listening, to be honest, but let's take a break. (laughs) Let's take a break and we'll do overrated, underrated. Welcome back to the show. Uh, We're going to do our original segment, overrated, underrated, properly rated. Uh, Will, you ready? Mm -hmm. Did you want me to go first? Yeah, why not? You go first. All right. Overrated, underrated, or properly rated, stringer singlets. Um, I actually feel guilty in even engaging in this segment, by the way, now, like it's actually kind of killed the fun for me having fucking Kevin give us, give us a bad name. Um, give us a bad rap. (sighs) Um, that said stringer singlets are, you think about it. They're overrated. Um, so I, I actually like singlets a lot. I want to get that out there. I like them for training. I like them for life. I think they're really, really good. But the things that make um, the things that make singlets good for the most part are honestly just bringing up your armpits and your arms and getting you like just a little bit more convection, being a bit more comfortable. Generally, um, if you do like if you're in the gym and you're the type of person who likes to check yourself out, then having a singlet on like will still give you a pretty good idea of how your upper body's looking. Excellent stuff. Really good. They're comfortable when you walk around on the street, like all that stuff. Totally back them. But stringers just take you like 10 steps more towards looking like an absolute ass hat without actually adding anything to a singlet in terms of functionality. Um, I don't think like, I don't think that you need a full stringer singlet to be able to see that your upper body is getting a pump. You can get that perfectly fine with a singlet. You suddenly can't walk around on the street without looking like a tool with a singlet on. You can actually squat pretty comfortably um, without the bar, like rubbing on your back and stuff. So you get the benefits of a singlet without the drawbacks of having your back exposed on a stringer. You don't get that Um, on a stringer. You leave heaps of your sweat on any bench you lie down on. Whereas on a singlet, you don't necessarily do that. There's just, there's lots of downsides to stringers. And I think, and they also just look bad. That's the other thing is if you wear like a tank, you actually can look really like quite good 
Whereas in a stringer, I think you almost everybody looks bad and you look like a tool. So there's just, yeah, there's lots of reasons why I think they're bad. So they're overrated. What do you think? Great assessment of stringer singlets. Completely agree. Yeah. I hate them. Um, I don't really wear singlets as it is, especially for training. Um, I get cold arms. And also, I have really so pale, also I have really pale arms, which doesn't <laughs> yeah. help. No, I have like, <laughs> this is actually a thing. I have like uniforms for my different days of training. So I like to wear a singlet on the day that I'm deadlifting. Um, I don't like singlets as much when I squat. I actually, I do think that having a shirt just makes the bar feel a bit better on my back when I squat. Um, whereas I do like having a singlet when I deadlift. It's more comfortable. And I, I always pair my singlets with certain shorts. And then that ends up just meaning that I have a uniform because that means those shorts are dirty, which means I pair my squats with other shorts. And suddenly I just wear the same things every day when I train. But I do very much like a singlet for my days that I deadlift. And if I am training, if I was training like bodybuilder style, then probably I would wear singlets on my upper body days, particularly back day. I find them, I find them comfortable. And like I said, I think they look good and there's no, there's no like shame or you don't look bad walking around in a singlet on the street, you know? Yeah, I, I completely agree. But I actually think there's something to that whole uniform concept. Like it's similar, it's similar to like a, a routine. Like when you put on that singlet and shorts, you know, it's deadlift day, you know, it's like yeah, the start absolutely. of, it's like the start of it. Um, yeah. To go, to go back to stringers, the fact that anyone has actually ever worn one. <laughs> immediate, on. Immediately implies that they're overrated because <laughs> they are so bad and they should never be worn ever. It's like literally the least attractive thing you could possibly wear to the gym outside of like, I would actually prefer to see someone training shirtless than training in the stringer. <laughs> like I pretty much agree, but I think it's just so funny. Um, yeah, fully agree. And the thing is like, this is how much I don't like them. Um, my mate was, um, got like a clothing sponsorship from a gym, a gym wear company in Sydney. And I stole a stringer from him once, not knowing it was a stringer like thinking I was just taking a singlet to wear the training. Couldn't wear it, literally couldn't put it on. And it's, it's in my wardrobe. I won't wear it around the house. If there's no one here, I still don't want to wear a stringer. Like I hate them. So yeah, overrated. All right, Alex. No one wants to see your nips. (laughs) No, certainly not mine. Alex. Overrated, underrated, properly rated. Fitness podcasts. Hmm, I would say properly rated. Go on. I feel like most podcasts are properly rated because the people who listen to them enjoy them. And Well, not you know, Kevin. Yeah, well, I hope Kevin never listens. <laughs> yeah, go on. Yep, come on, Kevin. Please never listen to us again. No, no not really. You can keep listening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think anyone who listens to podcasts, and this could be of any genre, like you don't choose a podcast that you dislike. So I guess each individual podcast is properly rated to the individual, right? Mm. Look, I, 
I think that's a pretty reasonable assessment of fitness podcasts. I think it's kind of tough as well because there's a lot of fitness podcasts. There's like there's only two that I would listen to almost every episode they release, and even then I don't listen to every single one. And that's um, Iron Culture and Stronger by Science. I enjoy both of them a lot. Um, but there are a number of other ones where if they've got the right guest on and stuff, I'll listen. But I think just because the space of fitness podcasts is so crowded, like pretty much invariably there's going to be some that are lower quality. And there's also going to be a number that just have very little to offer unless you're in like a very, very specific niche, you know, and for us that might be Australian powerlifters who like the boys. But, um, but oh, we are killing that niche, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but but I think what you said is actually really fair. Is sort of like you won't listen to it unless you like it, and most people don't keep a podcast going unless like people listen to it. So so got to be about properly rated. Yeah, I think for me, like I don't tend to listen to fitness podcasts because my life is strength training. It's what I do for a hobby. Um, it's what I do for work. And it's where I spend a lot of my time when we're not in lockdown is in the gym. So I don't really want to be spending my free time unless I'm learning about a specific topic, um, thinking about my work, um, you know, unless there's something in particular that I actually want to learn about or something, some opinion that I want to hear. Um, so for me, like I don't really have a good take on the fitness podcast landscape because I really do not listen to many. Like I tend to keep my podcast listening like a fun hobby and, you know, stuff that I want to learn that's outside of work. Interestingly, um, of the, like when I do listen to fitness podcasts, the times that I enjoy it the most are often the, the times when it's either like just humor or anecdote, like where I don't really, I don't really feel the need for my podcast to be like study for me when I listen to things. But when things are like, when just general chit chat between guys who are like having a good time and uh, making me laugh and stuff is anchored in fitness, it's like, that's familiar territory. I can relate to them when they're talking. But the thing I'm actually enjoying is basically just like people having a laugh, you know? Mm. Um, and so when you, when you put it like that, it's really funny because like almost the last thing I would do unless something's like really fascinating and niche is look for a podcast to talk to me about you know, fucking molecular biology or something that I'm trying to learn about. Like, I just don't care. But if I can hear a podcast where someone's like telling a story that I want to hear or, or, you know, two guys are like having a laugh, chit chatting about a topic that I can relate to, but they're just entertaining to hear talk. Then suddenly I'm into it, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of how I go about my podcast listening too. like most of the podcasts I listen to are either basketball related or comedy from comedians. Mm. Um, and the basketball podcast I would listen to like that speak, talk about a saturated market. Like there are so many shit boss basketball podcasts, but the ones that I like are like generally quite conversational. They're, they debate stuff. It's not like reading off a piece of paper. They're talking off the top of their head, telling stories, getting, you know, players in for interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the comedian ones are just like, it's one comedian with a microphone, just talking shit for an hour. And it's funny. I find the idea of like a comedy podcast where it's literally just stand up basically, but in your ears so weird because like part of the dynamic of stand up that makes it funny is actually having an audience. You know what I mean? Like even though it's a one-sided conversation, it feels like a two-sided conversation and it's just funny because the whole circumstance is absurd. Um, so having somebody just delivering jokes straight to my ears, I can't imagine finding it that funny. 
I, I it's not they're not like pre-written. Like when you go to a stand-up routine, when you go see a stand-up show, like they've developed their show over months and they know exactly what they're going to say and exactly how they're going to deliver each joke, when they're going to pause, et cetera, the order of jokes, all that kind of stuff because they've tried it out. Whereas when like you get someone who's genuinely funny, they'll literally write like four words down on a piece of paper and then just go. And they're just, they're just talking. Like they're not necessarily trying to be funny, but they just are. That's just their nature. Yeah, right. So no, it's not I, like I could get they're, into they're not, it. Yeah, no, they're not hitting like they're not hitting like actual jokes. They're they're just um sort of having a conversation with themselves. Yeah, right. Well, I might have to give comedy podcasts a go. I have plenty of time to listen to podcasts right now. It's kind of funny though. I prefer to listen to mine when I'm driving, um, mm. or to a degree when I'm walking. Um, mm. but I might have to give some pod- comedy podcasts a go. All right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. We'll, that, we'll finish it there. Yeah, I was going to say, that pretty much wraps it up from me for the week. Um, I'm Will Berkman. You can find me on Instagram at w.berkmanpt. I'm Alex Hayes, Alex Hayes underscore process, and go follow Weekly Weights Podcast. Alex, do you want to tell them about your comedy podcast? You're launching it. My comedy podcast? Yeah. I was actually very close to launching a uh, basketball podcast recently. Really? <laughs> With a couple of my mates. Yeah, we've been doing this. I won't go into details, but we've, we've been uh, developing all these hypotheticals um, over the last few weeks. Like we've been having daily, daily uh, Facebook messenger chat and video chat, like developing all these hypotheticals and stuff. And it would actually be a good podcast. And we've got it up on Reddit now. And we've got all these people commenting. It's pretty cool. Oh, man. Okay. Well, maybe you should launch your podcast and finally fucking wrap this one up. <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks man we'll chat to you guys next week <laughs>